What sorts of things drive you? You both are working so hard. You're activists. You're, you never stop reading and writing. You're passionately engaged in the world. And I wonder what's driving you both. What's, what's motivating you? What's important to you? To make you... What's important? Uh, what's important? Looking in the mirror in the morning and not being appalled at what I see. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> For me, it's looking out the window and not being appalled at what I see. <laughs> So in other words, you're really concerned about feel, feeling that in your life you've done all you can do to... Um, I know situation. I haven't done anywhere near what I could do, which mm -hmm. is why I often am appalled when I look in the mirror, but uh, mm -hmm. looking out the window and seeing what's there... And you feel the responsibility thinking, as an intellectual... Not as an intellectual, just a human being. As a human being. So, I, mean, it's a, I think it's a kind of funny question. The question that ought to be, like a lot of questions, it's the wrong one. Yeah. The question that ought to be asked is, why doesn't everybody engage themselves, recognize that they're not engaging themselves enough, mm -hmm. because none of us are, even saints, uh, in trying to uh, help deal with the problems of suffering people? Also, what is there in our society that makes empathy into such short supply? I'm more shocked by that than other people in every society, the inability to picture what it is like to be somebody else. Now, my profession as a novelist, I have to do that. I become other people. Mm -hmm. But I've always had that tendency, and I'm always startled when I start to talk to people, start going on about how much they hate the blacks or the Jews or the gay people, and you suddenly see there is no ability to identify with anyone else except themselves. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if I had a motivating thing, I probably would come out in an overwrought empathy mm -hmm. and irritability of its absence in others. Now, in conversation, Gore Vidal and Noam Chomsky. I'll give you a little picture. I like to do little pictures. Two years ago, Rights of Man in Paris, 200th anniversary, and I'm there to talk about it on television. And all the chiefs of state from all the world are there, and the whole center of Paris is cordoned off day after I'm trying to get out of the hotel suddenly down the empty streets comes this black limousine with two American flags and the presidential seal is George Bush and Barbara and the Secret Service and they go slowly down the street and I have to walk a couple blocks still trying to find a way to get out of there they comes back up the street they're lost <laughs> time, and no one had paid any attention to the Emperor of the West in Paris at this meeting. And I said to myself, this is an odd thing to see the Emperor of the West drifting around the streets of Paris. He's going to have to think of something to do. And he did. He decided to invade a little country? A war, as war is the usual diversion. His son was possibly allegedly going to prison for his SNL efforts. The cost of bailing out the SNLs, according to that radical paper, the Wall Street Journal, it will be slightly more than the entire cost of World War II to the United States in today's dollars. So there's a lot to divert attention from. That, to me, was the point of the war. There obviously subtext, but that's the central one in my mind. I agree with you on the diversion. I mean, there are many audiences that had to be addressed by this operation. And one of them is the American population, who have mm -hmm. to be diverted not just from the SNLs, but from the whole growing social and economic catastrophe around them, which has been very much accelerated in the Reagan-Bush years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, after all, this is not the first time. There have been periodic episodes of exactly this sort right through the 1980s. Uh, there's been repeated 
huge propaganda efforts establishing some uh, awesome chimera about to destroy us, and then we're miraculously rescued at the last minute. Uh, you know, international terrorists and you bomb Libya and we're saved. Uh, narco-traffickers and you smash up Panama and we're saved. Even Grenada, you know, 100,000 people. Uh, was set up as a major threat to our existence with an airfield, and, you know, going to interdict the sea traffic in the Caribbean and so on, and then we're saved and so on. And that's that's standard. I mean, you have to divert. You want to make sure that the population doesn't think about what's around them and maybe do something about it. Uh, obviously, that's one audience. But the so international scene is well, that's one that. part mm -hmm. of it, but there's more. I think the imperial element is also significant. The the third world has to be taught a lesson. Uh, they have to be taught a lesson that if you step on our toes, you don't just get beaten, you get pulverized. Uh, and in fact, the administration was kind enough to uh, give us that story in their own words. They leaked, on just as the ground, so-called ground war, it's not a war, the ground operation was beginning, they leaked a section of a national uh, security review, policy security review from security policy review from the early days of the Bush administration, so long before this, and it was a section on third world threats. Mm -hmm. uh, and what it said was something like this. It said, in the case of a much weaker enemy, uh, it is not enough to defeat them. You have to defeat them decisively and rapidly, because anything else would be too embarrassing and might undercut political support. So the trick is you find a much weaker enemy, Build them up to be a, a major monstrous force, menacing force. Saddam Hussein, then defeat army. them, or mm -hmm. you know Noriega, which done just a year ago with Noriega. Mm -hmm. Defeat them decisively and rapidly, and, mm -hmm. and that's the only way to keep political support. Uh, uh, <coughs> and that's a lesson to the third world, but it's also a lesson to the world as a whole. I mean, the United States no longer is the, the overwhelmingly dominant economic force in the world, as it was for many years. Mm -hmm. It's now just one of three. But in military force, it ranks supreme, and it has every reason to want confrontations in the world shifted to the military arena, because the domain of force is where the United States is dominant, and you play your strong card in any confrontation. U.S. card happens to be force. Uh, furthermore, it's... Uh, it, it's more intricate because the U.S. no longer has the economic base to carry out the traditional role of third world intervention. Mm -hmm. It therefore has to become, as the business press has been very frank in pointing out, has to become a mercenary state. Uh, others are going to have to pay for these adventures. And one source of payment is petrodollars. One of the major sources of capital in the world is uh, the profits from uh, energy production. And the United States wants to make sure, as it has to make sure that those profits uh, are fed primarily to support the U.S. economy and, of course, mm -hmm. the economy of its lieutenant in these operations, namely Britain. What, uh, about, the way back. what about the standard argument here, though, Noam, that, Noam, that um, Saddam Hussein really is a bad guy, yeah, sure that he did do a terrible thing in invading his neighboring country, Kuwait, that he did subject the Kuwaiti people to terrible tortures, um, and, that probably, and that he also was probably building up a nuclear arsenal. But these were all, so in many ways, there was a justification for this war. Well, look, all of those things are true, and they were all true on August 1st. Mm -hmm. uh, on August 1st, when uh, uh, the United States, uh, when it was true in 1980. Mm -hmm. In 1980, Saddam Hussein was basically a Russian client. 
uh, Reagan and Bush and Thatcher recognized him as our kind of guy, you know, mm -hmm. and they worked very hard for several years to switch him over to the U.S. side. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, in 1982, he was taken off the list of terrorist states so that they could then get huge U.S. credits to uh, buy U.S. exports. Became one of the leading trade. Tra the U.S. became one of his leading trading partners. Uh, by 1987. Uh, Iraq was lar largely a uh, Western, dependent on the West, also for the build-up of its uh, extensive weapons of mass destruction and so on. Uh, when he did things like, say, gassing the Kurds in 1988, the Reagan administration intervened to prevent Congress from uh, uh, condemning it in any serious way, let alone to stop sanctions. This went right on to 1990. I mean, in July 1990, Bush intervened again to try to prevent the House Foreign Affairs Committee from condemning Saddam Hussein, or it did impose some sanctions that would interfere with American business. Mm -hmm. In fact, on August 1st, you know, while they were getting not only warnings, but direct statements from the CIA saying the invasion is coming, uh, on August 1st, the White House authorized new high technology shipments to Iraq. In the preceding two weeks, up to August 1st, mm -hmm. they had authorized According to what's made, been made public so far, and that's the real story, but what's been made public so far, they authorized almost $5 million worth of high technology aid. To go to Iraq. It went not just to Iraq, it went to the Ministry of mm -hmm. Military Industry, it went to the nuclear research plant that was later bombed on the grounds that it was producing military bombs, mm -hmm. uh, it, and, and to a chemical, and to, a, to another plant that was bombed on the grounds that it was producing chemical and biological weapons. Now, that was mm -hmm. two weeks before. And mm -hmm. it's true that the invasion of Kuwait was a crime, but, you know, his yes. record was so sordid that uh, mm -hmm. what it added to it is very slight and was of no concern to the United States. <coughs> so I mean, this makes no sense. What's the turning point? Why? The turning point is what? a step on our toes. Well, uh, that you don't do. I mean, by the standards of the United States and Britain, mm -hmm. you can gas your population, you can torture, you can murder, you can set up one of the most brutal tyrannies in the world. That's all fine as long as you're Arab thug. Yes. But uh, he did something on August 2nd, which is impermissible. He was told, we don't care very much if you rectify border problems, but he took over Kuwait, mm -hmm. and that's not allowed. We run the oil business, and when anybody steps on our toes, mm -hmm. especially if they're much weaker, uh, then they get not only defeated, but pulverized. That's the lesson that has to be learned. Don't step lesson, on our toes. You speak of the lesson to the second and third world countries. Mm -hmm. Even more important, apropos of my vision of an aimless president drifting lost in Paris, ignored by other leaders, this was a message, a lesson to the first world. That not only were the Soviet Union off the world stage as an empire, what we are doing, we, are, we have no national at all uh, reason in the Middle East. We have no national interest. We get 15% of our oil comes from there, and we could just as easily get it from somewhere else. But, of course, Western Europe and Japan get most of their oil from there. I think, uh, I, I, I don't believe that American administrations are very good at planning or indeed thinking, and they don't, they're generally rather ignorant, but I suspect that this is not only a message to Western Europe, mm -hmm. but to Japan that we are going to be a permanent military presence in the Middle East, and that's where the oil supply is. Mm -hmm. And I can see further down the road, we would absolutely collapse economically if every quarter the Japanese didn't come in by American Treasury bonds. 
I could just see the Bank of Japan dragging its feet or the Bundesbank and the United States uh, clearing its throat and starting to talk about oil prices. Mm. And suddenly they will start buying our treasury bonds. Mm. I mean, it's blackmail. Well, I, I think that's... I'd like, I don't entirely agree with that. I think there's another factor. Uh, it's true that we don't use oil, from the Middle, very little oil from the Middle East, and as you say, we could get by with none. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the profits from Middle East oil are a major factor. Well, the oil companies, yes. Not just the oil American. companies, not just the oil companies, the profits made by the client states. Mm. The, equate, I mean, the way the, when Britain and the United States set up the imperial settlement for the region, uh, the oil, is the, tr the idea is, goes back to Lord Curzon, that you set up what, what Lord Curzon called an Arab facade, uh, and that then Britain, but later the United States, would rule, uh, would disguise absorption behind the veil of constitutional so, fictions like buffer state and so on. So you have this Arab facade, which is basically family dictatorships. They manage the oil system for us, but they, uh, but we make sure that we do have the lever some, there's some leverage over pricing and production. We want that to be in our hands for exactly the reasons you mentioned. We also want to make sure that the flow of investments, uh, of capital, of profits, is largely back to the British and American economies. Actually, we have documentary evidence on this. The documentary record's been cleared, partially at least, through about, sure. through about 1960. And it's very interesting to look at the uh, declassified British and American records after the Iraqi Revolution in 1958. That was the first break in the Anglo-American condominium. Sure. So naturally, they were hysterical about it. And mm -hmm. Selwyn Lloyd flew over to Washington and talked to Dulles and so on and so forth. And they decided at that time to uh, grant some kind of nominal independence to Kuwait to try mm -hmm. to dampen the threat of another nationalist revolution there. Uh, and uh, though they reserved the right, as Selwyn Lloyd put it, ruthlessly to intervene if anything goes wrong with this settlement. And the reasoning was that uh, at that time, particularly Britain, very concerned about that Kuwaiti investments had to, both Kuwaiti oil and Kuwaiti investments had to prop up this tottering British economy and in fact prop up sterling <coughs> altogether. Now, by the, we don't, by the 1970s, the U.S. is in the same position. Uh, and it's not just the Japanese who buy treasury bonds, the Saudi Arabians buy them. Do you realize what the average American listener to this program will think hearing you people talk about the war in the Gulf? You're essentially saying that this, that, that what was seen on television was a mirage. That essentially um, the main arguments for the Gulf War were were faked. Really, what we're looking at are underlying economic, profit-oriented reasons for pursuing this war in the Gulf. Profit and power. Profit and power. And uh, I would stress again what Gore said: diversion mm -hmm. of the American public. Mm -hmm. I mean, the American the public problems. must look away from their own problems. Exactly. But, but this isn't the picture that most Americans have. Why should it be? What's, I mean, what's, the, what's the media are doing here? our job, after all, and the intellectuals are doing their job, which is to prevent people from understanding what's happening. I mean, I've just been speaking at Harvard, a, a, a pleasant and gentle mm -hmm. place, but it, 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 Harvard exists, as does CBS, ABC, New York Times, to give the viewpoint of the establishment that owns and runs the country. And they have a worldview which has not coincided at any point with any reality that anybody mildly curious can uh, mm -hmm. discover. I would say that probably what the people think on almost any subject is, is, has been doctored for. Sanctions were working against mm -hmm. Saddam. 
the problem was that 90% of the people when asked do they think sanctions were working didn't know what the word meant. A few Roman Catholics thought that a sanction was a step towards sainthood somewhere after beatitude and before. The rest of them had no idea at all. What about the debate in the U.S. Senate about should we authorize the war or not? One saw a real medley of voices, points of view there, didn't we? Well, you no. certainly saw a lot of, some quite good speechwriters have been mm -hmm. called in, I must say. Mm -hmm. Eloquence, many people who could not parse a sentence were giving rather nice speeches. No, what you saw was the, uh, was the total collapse of our constitutional system of government in which only uh, Congress may declare a war. Bush at one point said what I've been saying for years, why well, he said we've, we've done armed intervention 220 times and uh, only five times have we ever declared war. Why I've been we, saying this and they've been denying it. Now, why shouldn't Bush we be said, praising George Bush now because he actually decided to follow um, a legal route to pursuing this war that's not and he also brought um, into the coalition uh, so many other nations. He didn't act no. unilaterally. Neither of those statements is accurate. No, it was, uh, I mean, the coalition was the United States and England. Uh, in fact, up until January... What about France? Up until January 15th, it was a U.S.-British command in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. uh, after it became clear the war was going to go on, mm -hmm. uh, France, Italy, and a couple of other countries decided they'd like to get their fingers in the... Uh, post-war settlements and the three days before we started but it was a U.S.-British command and it was a U.S.-British war very isolated mm -hmm. in the world through the, the famous 28 countries that were in mm -hmm. the coalition uh, most of them were there to enforce the sanctions mm -hmm. uh, in fact and as far as the legalities are concerned the U.S. just once again did what it's been doing for many years namely undermine the United Nations the United Nations has procedures and mm -hmm. they were blocked but didn't we get a UN resolution? No. Well, we, we notice what the resolution said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got a resolution in which the UN said, in effect, we wash our hands of the matter. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the well, why would they do that? Why would so many countries just fall back and take a back seat? They, United States, nice United States is a very frightening place. You don't fool around with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, th this is what's been happening in the UN for years. Let's take the period during which George Bush has been in national prominence. He was. Mm -hmm appointed UN ambassador in February 71, so they take that period. Mm -hmm. During that time, the uh, United States has vetoed about two-thirds of the Security Council resolutions that have been vetoed have been vetoed by the United States. Mm -hmm. About half of the rest have been vetoed by England, the mm -hmm. United Kingdom. That's between, between them, that's about 80%. Mm -hmm. Way down in third place is France, and fourth is the Soviet Union. Uh, the United Nations, the same as in the General Assembly. I mean, you get votes in the General Assembly like, you know, 150 to 1 or 140 We've also to placed ourselves outside the law. Yeah. We made it very clear over Nicaragua when we were called before the International Court at The Hague, which we'd helped set up at the beginning of the century, uh, over mining the Nicaraguan harbors, and we said uh, we don't recognize the Court at The Hague. No, we're rejecting then, right now we're rejecting reparations. I mean, no, this, this is, is the one country that's rejecting reparations, meanwhile calling on Iraq to pay reparations. But mm -hmm. in this current case, if you look closely at what happened to the UN, yeah. I think it was another case uh, in which the United States and its English lieutenant succeeded in subverting the United Nations. I mean, the UN response was mm -hmm. pursue sanctions and diplomacy. Mm -hmm. as usual effort after any act of aggression. It usually is blocked right away by the United States, which mm -hmm. vetoes it or undermines it. But look what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States intervened directly to block diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I, I think sanctions already probably already had worked. 
I mean, there but were... you know, we didn't have to go for... In the past, uh, the American presidents wouldn't have gone for UN support in yeah. any case. Yeah, but look, this, was a, this was a Isn't this a turning op- point no. for the American empire? No, it's a big operation. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not like invading Panama, where we don't ask mm-hmm. anybody what they think. We just invade Panama. Mm-hmm. This is half a million troops uh, in the mm-hmm. most sensitive area of the world, which everybody's concerned about. You mm-hmm. have to get at least the pretense of a cover of support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, after a lot of arm twisting uh, and pressure and threats, they succeeded in getting the Security Council to abdicate. Mm-hmm. That's in effect what happened. It's the old frog in the pan thing. If you put a frog in a, in a mm-hmm. pan with water, cold water, and sit there, mm-hmm. you can heat it up until it becomes boiling and the frog will feel nothing. <laughs> As it is happening so gradually, the frog adapts to each change of the water. The end of it is a dead frog, mm-hmm. but he has not uh, had any anxiety about it. Well, so we're I sometimes think our people are the frog and pan, that things are going very badly mm-hmm. uh, for the economy, for the average person, mm-hmm. and no one's doing anything about it. And we have the politics of diversion, which are foreign adventures, mm-hmm. and we have a irresponsible, to put it mildly, press. Has the empire really run out of gas? I mean, are we at the end of empire now? Or are we just in a middle phase? Do we have another 50 years of diversionary tactics abroad? Well, the empire ended in 1950 when we were defeated in Korea. That was really the end, and the Russians got the atomic weapons. Mm -hmm. There was then parity. Once there's parity, you're not the world empire. You may be a world empire.